Um, this morning, just want to let you know, we are in the middle of uh, what we are calling Repentance Sunday. And so you guys came into uh, a weekend where there's a lot of things that are taking place, not only in our church, uh, our community, but all around this nation. And uh, many of you guys are going like, okay, Repentance Sunday isn't every day a Repentance Day. And to that question, I would say, yes, you're right. We caught on to like every single message ever. But uh, like every single day is a day to repent. It's a day to come before the Lord in all of our honesty and to be able to say, Father, this is the stuff that's inside of me. I'm laying it down at the foot of the cross and I'm turning from this through the power of the Holy Spirit that you can be honored and glorified in my life again. And this is a weekend where I'm just gonna say that churches all around this nation, uh, many of them gathered in D.C. this weekend to be able to go do that. They're coming across all kinds of denominations, all kinds of value structures, all kinds of people gathering in one place out there. And then other people are coming together doing Repentance Sunday, which are just doing essentially the same thing and calling churches to come and to, and to recognize that there is healing when we come before the Lord our God and we come and repent. And so I just want to tell you as your past, like, like I'm looking at this weekend and saying, hey, there's a ton of talk and there's a ton of prayer about repentance. And quite honestly, like I'm very, very optimistic and very hopeful about what God may do in us personally and us together as a church body and us as a people group all around this nation if we're willing to actually repent. If we're willing to not let this be so much more than, than maybe just words or just prayers about what's wrong with the people out there across the line, and we're able to say, Father, I want to actually repent. I want to know, God, what's going on inside of my soul, the things that I am, uh, the, the things that I am chasing, the idols that are seriously, uh, that are elevated in my life. God, I want to know those things, and those are the things I want to lay down before you, and I want to repent of these things. It's not just those people across the lines uh, that, are, that, are, that are bringing in war to our country left and right, but, but it's me right here, and I'm incredibly optimistic about what can take place personally, culturally, as a church body, and even here in our country if we come before the Lord with an honest attitude and a desire to repent and to turn from our sin and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and the beauty of the fullness of the gospel as he's intended us to walk with him. And so that is what we're going to be calling us to a little bit later in this service. This is going to be a time where we're going to talk very, very specifically about some things that, and my hope is that we would be able to get specific, that it wouldn't just be general things, again, about other people and the things that they've brought into the world, but the things that, the ways that we've specifically gone uh, against the will of God. And so we're going to have a time of that here in a little while. And, uh, but to help us do that, we're going to get in this passage today in Romans chapter 1, and it's going to help us get very, very specific about the things that are going on inside of our soul that the Bible not only calls sin, but one of the main problems in the world today. And so we're going to get into that. Romans chapter 1, I'm going to pick it up in 22. We're going to go all the way to 32 today. And uh, you can go ahead and follow along in your Bibles if you have that. If you are tuning in online, I'm going to be putting some of these passages up on the screen. It'll be easy for you to follow along with there. Um, if you're just joining us in this series in Romans, uh, there's a couple questions that the Apostle Paul is addressing first and foremost for us here at this point in the text. Again, we're pretty early on. We've been hanging out here for seven weeks in a row. Uh, but there's two questions. The first one is, why in the world should any of us live by faith? Why should a people of faith be a people that live by faith, essentially? He's just said that in 16 and 17. This is kind of the main crux of Romans. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He says it is a power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, meaning in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about the victory that's been won for us in him, in it, the righteousness of God has been revealed from heaven for faith, uh, from faith and for faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so he's going to answer that question. Why should you then live by faith? Uh, on a broader context, he's going to be answering the question, okay, what in the world is wrong with the world? We talked about that last week, right? This is the question many of us are asking right now. You, you turn on the news or social media and you're kind of going, okay, what, what in the world is wrong with the world today? And so he begins answering that for us in, in 18, the first one about why should we live by faith? He says in verse 18, he says this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodly godliness and the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. In other words, one of the reasons why you and I should be a people not only of faith, but be a people who live by faith is because the wrath of God is actually unleashed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness against sin, which uh, as we said last week, these are actually two different things. Ungodliness being the vertical breakdown in how we think about God, the things that we believe are true about God. Uh, unrighteousness being the horizontal ways that that is broken and uh, in a 
destroys our relationships around us. It's the ways that faith gets played out all around us. We've said this before. Everyone, whether you're an atheist, an agnostic, or religious person, everyone in the world walks by faith. Everyone lives by faith in something, and it has implications in the world in which we live. And so he talks about ungodliness, vertical brokenness, and what we believe about God, horizontal brokenness and unrighteousness, how that plays out with one another. And of course, the greater problem in in both of these things, which again, we talked about last week, is that both of these things begin and they end with the suppression of truth. And so this is what he's saying. Like they both begin with the suppression of truth. Like we, we get into ungodliness and unrighteousness because we suppress the truth. But not only that, um, as we continue in unrighteousness, well, not only do we perpetuate more and more evil, but it perpetuates more and more and more suppression of the truth. And so that is the beginning of what's wrong in the world today. What in the world is wrong with the world today? We have a tendency to suppress the truth. Even though God has made himself known to us Clearly, in the context of creation, he's made himself known to us in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He's actually condescended from heaven, taken on flesh, and appeared in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in, uh, in the incarnation, and then also in the truth of his word. He's made himself known to us. However, humanity has a way of taking what is true and suppressing it so that we can create our own truth instead. That's why we talked about last week, this quote by Tim Keller, what it said, uh, when it comes to the knowledge of God, we know him, but we don't really know him because we don't really want to know him. We, we, we know him, but we don't really, really know him because at the end of the day, we don't really want to know him. And as again, we talked about last week, I want us to resist the urge to say, look at them out there. Look at all the atheists, the agnostics, and the ways that they suppress the truth. Because Paul doesn't let us sit in that self-righteousness very long. He moves on in chapter 2 and he says, hey, hey, you religious people here, I know, it's like, I know I'm using they language right now in chapter 1. But hey, you need to look in the mirror because not only do, they, do, you, do you acknowledge the same thing, you practice the same things too. And so you need to look at yourselves too because what may begin out there and what may be true out there, it often finds its way in here too. And then we become also suppressors of the truth. And so I want to pick it up here in verse 21. Here's how this whole thing plays out. Here's what he says. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Instead, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Again, as we talked about last week, uh, evidently, uh, contrary to popular opinion today, you can be really, really wrong about things you honestly believe are true. In your wisdom, he says, claiming to be wise, we are wise, we're superior, we, we know things. Claiming to be wise, they became fools instead. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so I want you to notice the projection that's going on here at this text, the movement that's taking place. It begins with the suppression of the truth. I'm seeing the truth right in front of me through creation, uh, through the inspiration of God's word, what he's given us in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. I see the truth that's taking place in front of my face. It begins with the suppression of truth. Uh, I I can see it. I I don't want to be accountable to a divine creator. I don't want to be accountable to somebody else's truth. And so I suppress it and I push it off to the side and then I exchange it for something else that I really prefer Instead, it's exactly what's taking place right here. They exchange uh, the glory of the immortal God for images that are resembling mortal man and birds and animals and all kinds of creeping things. And so basically, again, what we're seeing here, the problem begins with suppressing the truth. It's one element of the problem. It begins with the suppression of truth, but then it continues uh, into what the Bible calls idolatry. We replace it with something that we really prefer instead. And that is what idolatry actually is. It is the suppression of the truth about God who rightly belongs on the throne of your life in favor of something else that has no business being in a place of authority whatsoever. And again, before we start thinking that this is a thing that takes place in third world countries over there, this is a thing that plagues us as well as the Bible's going to talk about over and over again. I remember a number of years ago, I was at the beginning stages of, of Dallas Seminary and I got to know an Indian pastor who was there. He moved over to Dallas to go to school. And uh, I was asking him, I was like, he was from, uh, I think he's from Bangladesh. And he came over to Dallas and I was asking him, I was like, how's your, how was, uh, how was the transition to Dallas been for you? And he's like, oh, it's good. I love the food. Go Cowboys, all this kind of stuff. And he goes, but I got to be honest, I was a little bit taken back by the amount of idolatry that's here in Dallas. And I was like, really? That's interesting because I've been to India before. 
don't know if you've ever been to India before, but like everywhere you walk, and where I was anyway, in, in Bangladesh, um, Bangalore actually, not Bangladesh, Bangalore, um, it's like everywhere you walk, there's temples and there's idols everywhere you go. I remember coming out of a hotel room one day, uh, first thing in the morning, there's a termite hill in the middle of the street that was taller than I was. And there's people out there first thing in the morning, they're bowing down to a termite hill and, and they're worshiping this termite hill. So I was like, how in the world do you, do you see the idolatry playing out here in Dallas? And he explained it to me very, very simply. He said, look, Aaron, here's what's taking place, what you see in India. Like he goes, when people bow to their idols, all they're doing is bowing down so that they can get the thing that they really want the most. And so they bow to one God for money, they bow to another God for love, they bow to another God for health, and they bow to another God for power, but they're not bowing to those gods because they love those gods and want to actually serve those gods. They're bowing so they can get the thing that they really want the most. And he said, we do the exact same thing here in Dallas, Texas, and here as, here as, here as Americans. We do the exact same thing. The difference is we actually have the power, the money, the resources to purchase the things that we really love the most. And so we have no need to bow. But he says, the same thing that you see out there, it takes place here. And it even takes place in the American church. Church, we've talked about this before. Like, it's not just a problem out there. This is a thing that subtly over time can well up inside of the believer's soul where we subtly begin to elevate things that are not God. They, we, we elevate good things, little g gods, uh, grow over time, and they take, place the one, uh, they take the place of the one true God. We've said it here like this in the past. An idol can be anything that you functionally Love or functionally trust in more than God. And so the reason I say functionally is because like, I could care less about what you sing about and what you say you actually believe. I want to know like functionally, how does that play out? Functionally, like what do you actually love the most? What do you functionally trust in every single day as authoritative in your life? And so what we're saying here is that there's two parts to idolatry here, right? The first part is, uh, is about what you functionally love the most. It's good things like money or security or influence or power or entertainment or love or independence or comfort, good things that subtly over time become gods in your life and push off and suppress the truth about the one true God. That's one element of idolatry. The other part of idolatry that we need to pay attention to is all about honor and authority. What do you honor? What do you see as authoritative in your life? I mean, that is the problem that Paul's getting at here in verse 21. He says, even though they knew God, they knew that he's the one who spoke the world into existence. They know that he's got all power, honor, and authority in his life. They, they knew God. They did not honor him as God or even give thanks. And they may have, they may have like set it around the breakfast table or something like that, but like, honestly, they were thinking about the rest of the day. They didn't honor him as God, and they didn't even give thanks. Uh, and, and that's what's going on here in this text. I love how Matt Chandler illustrates it perfectly. I think I've shared it with you guys a few times. But he says it's kind of like uh, he's laughing at how ridiculous it is for Shaq uh, when Shaq was playing basketball back in the day, for him to beat his chest every single time he dunked on someone who was like five foot two. I don't know if you guys remember this back in the days. I'm a huge Shaq fan, uh, enjoyed him, and I don't want to pick on him because it's totally not him, and, but for the sake of illustration and stuff. But, uh, but you remember this, right? He'd be playing. He'd just sit down by, the, by, down by the basket. They'd lob him the ball. He'd dunk on someone who's like five foot two, right? And just like tear down the goal in the process. And he's like beating his chest. He's like, yeah. You know, like just, just going nuts about that. And he goes, it's ridiculous for us to claim all this glory for something you have nothing to do with. Like he had nothing to do with the fact that he's seven foot two, 350 pounds and athletic. Like that was a gift from God. There was a God in heaven who knew him in his poor mother's womb. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, he knew him in the womb and made him seven foot two, 350 pounds in athletic. And yes, he did a fantastic job of sharpening those gifts and working incredibly hard to become the incredible athlete that he is and stuff. But it makes no sense to, but it makes no sense to elevate ourselves and to hog all the glory when it was God who made you all of those things. But what we're saying, church, is like, this is exactly what we are prone to do. This is the sin of humanity. This is what we're prone to do. It's why secular sociologists all over the place are saying like, like the most the most popular God in America today is the God of self. It's us. It's we. We are the most popular God in America today. Whether you acknowledge it or not, we elevate ourselves and we place ourselves in the seat of authority all the time. I mean, even back in the garden, I mean, they had it perfect. Adam and Eve, perfect fellowship with God. Sin hadn't even been into the picture. You have total freedom, the entirety of this garden to go and eat whatever you want to eat except for that one thing over there. And what do we do? God, that's fantastic. It's not good enough. We're comfortable in the garden for a long time. You know what? 
I'm feeling prone to wander right now. I'm feeling a little confident. God, I think I know a few things here. And so that's great wisdom. It's good advice for me to stay away from that thing, but I think I can take it on my own. And with that one decision, that elevation of self and the suppression of the truth about God, sin came into the picture and it broke absolutely every fabric of the world which we live in today. It's exactly what Robert Bell is talking about when he says, the heart of American culture, the chief supreme value in American culture today is what he calls expressive individualism, which I told you a thousand times over until we fully understand what's taking place in the world today. It's what he calls expressive individualism. It is this idea that an individual's highest loyalty and highest source of truth is to him or herself and to him or herself only. Church, it's the video we played a little while ago, probably twice, I think it was, um, where the video, it's this viral video that went all around, and it asked the question, am I really a six foot five inch Asian woman? Do you guys remember this video at all? Uh, but this guy's going around to a college campus, and he says, what would you think if I told you I believed I was a woman? And everybody's kind of like, oh, okay, well, you do you, man. You do you. More power to you, you know? He's like, okay, that's cool. What would you, what would you say if I told you I believed that I was an Asian woman? And they're all kind of going, eh, you, don't really, you don't really look Asian, but cool. Okay, great. You do you, bro. You do you. And he goes, okay, would you have any problem if I started getting minority scholarship for this? And they're like, yeah, that's a problem. Because then you're taking money away from real Asians. I, but I, I think I am a real agent. And we start going down this track, and they're kind of going, ah, I got some tension here. I got some tension left and right and all this thing. And then he comes and he says, okay, okay, what if I told you that I honestly believed I was a six-foot-five-inch Asian woman? The dude's like five-seven, right? And they're like, no, 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 that's not right. That's not true. You're not six-foot-five. Church, is exactly what we're talking about here. When we elevate ourselves and put ourselves in the place of authority over the one true God, we minimize the truth out there, and we elevate ourselves. That's exactly what we're t- what's going on right here. Whatever I want to do, whatever I want to believe, I'm the one that gets to define reality. Like, I am the one who's on the throne of my life. I am the one who has total and complete authority over all of my decisions. I submit to no man, I submit to no woman, and I definitely submit to no God. And what Paul's saying here, church, is it's not just out there. It's not just out there. It's not just the people that are on the other side of the political aisle from you. It's not just the people that worship in that different church or that have never stepped foot in a church ever. He's saying this takes place in the church It comes in subtly, and over time, these little G gods, they get inflated, and they become the big G God in our life, and we sing about one big G God, and we worship another over here. Church, this takes place inside of here, and what he's saying is we've got to pay attention to these things. Like, even in the church, you've got to understand, like, when self gets elevated, it comes out in things like self-sufficiency. I have no need for help. My marriage is a wreck, but I will not let another person in my life know what's really going on. I will not ask for help. I will not be honest about it because I am self-sufficient and I can solve my own problems. Church, it comes out in us all the time, self-sufficiency, entitlement, entitlement. I don't really like that church because you know what? Like the, the kids' ministry wasn't, it didn't have this over here. They didn't have a slide for my kids to go down, Right? Like entitlement, that's what a real church, I'm going to go to another place because I don't like what we're saying over here. It's entitlement. It's all about me, and it's about me, and it's about me, and this is what happens when we elevate the God of self. We suppress the truth about God. We elevate the God of self, and church, what he's saying is it, it takes place inside of the church too, and subtly over time, we elevate ourself, and we suppress the truth about God, and we go our own way. That is the problem that has plagued us from the very beginning. We know the truth, but we don't really know the truth because the truth of the matter is we don't really want to know. And so we suppress the truth about God in favor of ourselves, which is why we can't honor him as God or actually enter into worship. And so we continue to read all the fallout from this text. This is a text about fallout. And you read the rest of this, and it's going to answer the question, why do we need to continue taking our sin seriously, even though it's been forgiven? As recipients of God's grace, why do we continue to take seriously our sin? And the truth of the matter is simply that there's fallout. When we take the place of God, it doesn't go the way that we expected it to go. And so he says in verse 24, Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And as we talked about last week, this is the first wave of God's judgment. It's the first wave of his wrath. Uh, he, he does get, there is eternal wrath, but what we, we're seeing this first wave of wrath where God says, fine, 
You want to go a different direction? I'll let you go. You want, you, you want to walk away from me? Okay. It's not going to go as well as you think it's going to go. But I'll let you have your freedom. In a lot of ways, it is the answer to the problem of evil in the world. Why would a good and holy God allow so much evil to persist in the world? He lets us do what we want to do for a time. And so he simply says three different times here, God gave them over. God gave them up. He says, you, you want to be your own God? Okay. It's not going to go well, but we'll, we'll let you do this. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Church, when kids' ministry comes back again, we'll get into this one a little bit more. Um, we'll talk about this a little bit more in depth. And uh, we will talk about the tension of truth and grace and what that looks like here. In verse 28, he continues going and he says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up again to a debased mind to do the things that they ought not be able to do. They were filled with all manners of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy and murder and strife, and deceit, and lie about everything to protect themselves. Maliciousness, they're gossips, they're slanderers, they're haters of God, insolent, haughty, and boastful, inventors of evil. <laughs> the evil we can do, is it's not good enough, I'm just going to invent new jacked up stuff to do. Disobedient to parents, probably the worst of them all, right, parents? Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things are deserving of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to people who practice those things. Church, this is the fallout of us being God. And if it's not the case that you and I are necessarily doing those things, he says, no, 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 no. Not only do some of them do the same things, but we give hearty approval when we see those things play out in the world all around us today. Church, this is the fallout of self being elevated in the place of God. We're haughty and we're boastful. We brag about everything like we're God's greatest gift. We're foolish and ruthless. We have no heart. We see grieving over here and we explain it away. We don't care about things that God has called us to care about. We see people weeping and we ignore it. We gossip about friends and we slander other people to make us feel better about who we are. We push other people down so that I can grab hold of some self-esteem. And again, if it's not just us doing this, we, we elevate and we celebrate or we're silent or we, 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 we celebrate, we get excited about when we see these things play out in the world around us. It'd be like if the earth said to the sun, okay, sun, time for you to get out of the way. You've had your day in the sun. You've had your place at the center of the universe. It's my time now. Like I'm sick of time. Why has it always gotta be about you, son? Why has it always gotta be about you? I mean, it, 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 it sounds fair theoretically, right? Okay, son, you've had your time it's time for my time to be the center of the universe. It sounds fair theoretically, but the problem is the sun happens to be 30,000 times bigger than the earth. And the sun happens to be the only thing in the universe with a gravitational capacity to keep everything else in orbit. And so here it is, church. The sun may acquiesce to the earth and allow it to do the things that it wants to do. But as soon as the earth suppresses the sun, everything else in the universe would start to unravel because the earth was never designed to be at its center. And church, it's exactly what Paul's showing us here. You and I were never designed to be at the center of this thing. You and I were never designed to be at the center of this thing. And so church, I want us to be really, really clear. What in the world is wrong with the world? Like the chief problem of man is not verse 26 and 27. The chief problem of man 
is not even pornography. It's not even abortion. It's not even adultery. It's not even murder. It's not even greed or any other singular issue. The chief problem of man is that you and I have suppressed the truth and we have elevated ourselves. And so we worship and serve a thousand other little G gods instead of the one big G God of the universe who spoke this whole thing into existence. I want to talk for a few minutes about some reflective questions that we can ask so that we can help discern if we've subtly fallen into the same trap and we've elevated ourselves and started serving some idols in our life because we're gonna have a time of repentance in a little bit and it would be a tragedy if we talked about repentance and we prayed for repentance and we only looked at people out there and never did the hard work of examination to say, Father, is there anything in me that needs to continue to be uprooted and extracted from my life for the praise and for the glory of your name? Church, what do you daydream about and think to yourself, Father, if I could only have this thing, then life for me would, be to begin, would begin. It's a good thing. This is a regular habit, habit and a pattern for us to come back to and to say, Father, to pay attention to the way that you daydream, the things that you wake up thinking about, the things that you're trying to, you're laying in bed and you're, you, you, they keep you awake at night. You can't go down. Like, you just think about them. And you think about them. And you think about them. Like, what are those things that you daydream about when you should be working in the office and, and, and you're just fantasizing. You're saying, if I could only have that thing, then life would begin for me. Maybe for a lot of us, it's things like love or marriage. Or maybe it's some picture of an ideal marriage that you may not have right now. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's a, a more luxurious home, more and more material things. If I could just have that car, that house, that addition, that neighborhood, that lifestyle, then life for me would really begin. How many of you know that you don't have to be rich to be materialistic and greedy? How many of us know that that, I, I, that does not have to, it, it's not just about how much you have, how much you've been able to produce. Like you can be rich, you can be greedy, you can have those idols of money and comfort and contentment and have none of those things. I discovered it in myself a number of years ago. And I'll just share this one with you. Like I remember coming at the, being at the beginning of seminary, uh, and this is a time no seminary student is rich pretty much, right? You're going, you're throwing all your money away on an education that's going to make you more and more poor than if you'd have just left at high school or something. But, um, and so I remember going, it was at the beginning of the seminary days, and uh, we were both going at the same time. We had very little. Every month was very difficult to pay the bills. I remember driving on 635 and seeing the lotto sign every day as I was driving by uh, the seminary. I remember one time it got up to $350 million, and I immediately started having this prayer before the Lord. I'm like, Father, like, you know how much good we could do with that thing if you happen to bless me with that money? Like, I'm responsible, like, I'm, I'm, I'm going, I'm going to serve you. Like, I remember having that prayer time and be like, God, you have no idea, like, how generous I'd be with that. You know, like, that would be incredible. And I'm kind of playing around with these prayers a little bit at that time. But I found myself, like, at the end of the night, as, as things got harder and harder, month after month after month, laying awake at night and really thinking about what if that thing came in. Father, I wouldn't need you to provide anything for me. I wouldn't need to depend upon you for anything. And I remember having these fantasies and these thoughts in my mind and it's through paying attention to the things that I chose to daydream about and, and, and play over and over again in my mind that I came to realize I have made this idol in my life of something that cannot satisfy and provide in the ways that God has provided for me ever before. But it came in recognition of what I was daydreaming about at that time. And I'm saying, hey, this is the thing that's gonna provide for me real life. Church, what are the strong, like, what do your strongest emotions, things like anger and joy and depression and anxiety, pay attention to some of these things, like, what do your strongest emotions, things like anger, joy, depression, anxiety, what do they reveal about the things that I love the most and trust in the most? Well, like, what do they actually say? And I want to be very careful about this because I'm not saying emotions are bad. They're not. They're very, he's made us emotive beings. God has a heart of compassion. God has a heart of emotion for different things. He, he, he cares deeply about these things. And we're not saying that emotions are, are necessarily wrong or that, they're always, uh, that they always point to something wrong. But emotions have a way of, of uh, playing out kind of like smoke from a fire. They let you know that there's something that's going on deep inside your soul that may be worth paying attention to. And it's not necessarily the case that, hey, maybe that fire is a controlled fire that's supposed to be going on right there. Maybe it's actually something that caught on fire and it's a big problem. 
But what smoke does is it lets you know, hey, this is something I need to go back and I need to pay attention to. And that's what some of our most extreme emotions will let us do. And so I would ask you, church, like what do some of your most extreme emotions, some of the really high highs and the low lows and all those things, what do they reveal about what you really, really love and what you really, really trust in the most? Uh, Lord, it's healthy to come back and say, Father, why am I so angry about what I'm seeing online? Why am I so angry when I realize, hey, someone voted differently than I do? Why does that make me so furious deep, deep down inside of my soul? Like, why, why, am I, why am I obsessed over this thing over here? I can spend all my time in this hobby and in this thing of entertainment, and it is a chore for me to read one verse and spend one minute of my life with you each day. What is going on inside of that obsession Father, what is it that, what's going on inside of my depression right here? Why am I so depressed about a sports game, right? Uh, this is the thing I, I realized to me, again, sophomore year in high school, I started walking with the Lord for the first time ever, and uh, I was a huge Houston Oilers fan at the time, and I remember getting to this place where if the Oilers lost, and they did a lot, um, Warren Moon crushed my soul a lot of times, anyway, um, but as a student, I remember watching some of these games and being so infatuated with the Oilers. When they lost that day, my whole day was completely crushed. And I start walking with the Lord. And I'm like, why in the world am I so depressed over a game as I lifted this thing up and made an idol of something that's supposed to just simply be good entertainment? And let me get really, really more specific with you here. And I'm going to get really real and very vulnerable because, church, I'm optimistic about repentance in as much as we're actually repenting of things that are true in us personally. But I remember a number of years ago when I first began in, in, in pastoral ministries, I was a singles pastor at the time, but I started noticing that I, could, I would actually get very depressed after incredible nights of worship if it did not go the way I expected it to go, if the crowds weren't what I had hoped that they would be. You know how painful that is to say that out loud? I remember sitting up there and like if, if the crowd, the room is full, and it went how I hoped it would. I'm like, man, things are great. Way to go. Praise God and all this stuff. And if, if it was one of those seasons, everybody was married the week before, everybody's gone or whatever. We come back and it's an emptier room or whatever it may be. I remember coming back church and I just came back being crushed. And say, Father, like, am I just ruining the whole church? Am I, am I blowing this whole thing? Am I ruining God's glory? Like I having these real thoughts come through in my soul. I remember processing this with Kat. And she's like, Aaron, you need to pay attention to this thing. Because that is not healthy, what's going on inside of your soul. You've got to deal with this thing. And so I went and I talked with my pastor. I talked with my group of boys, the, the guys that I talked about everything with. And I just said, hey, here's what's going on inside of my soul. And we talked about that. And we just asked these questions like, how in the world am I defining success? Am I defining success as God, success as God defines success? Being faithful to do the things that he's called you to do. Is that how I'm defining success? Or have I created my own definition of success, which is impossible to attain? And I remember asking these things, have I, have I suppressed the truth about God in favor of myself over here? And as a result, I, I think that that's going to bring me life. And in the end, it's actually crushing my soul. And I came to understand like there's an idol of success here that is not healthy and it is not what God has called me into doing. There's an idol of people pleasing over here too, which continues to just carry my, my emotions into different, into different places. But church, it came through a recognition of that I'm falling into some depression over here about circumstantial things over here, and there's smoke to a fire, and I need to figure out what's, go, what's at the root of that fire. I'll tell you right now, this past Monday, I reached out to a professional counselor because I wanted to give him per permission. It's 2020, y'all. I don't know if you guys figured this out. Right? It's 2020. And I'll just be real with you. It is a heavy, heavy 2020. There are some real emotions coming out of my soul, extreme gratitude and joy and heavy, heavy, heaviness. And I reached out to a counselor to say, I'm, I'm hiring you and paying you because I want you to ask me the questions I can't even ask of myself. I want you to do the work in my soul. Help me, there are things that go on inside of me which I'm not always equipped to figure out in myself and through prayer. It takes other people being able to see what's true inside of my soul, ask tough questions, and you need to come in here and help me figure out these emotions that I'm feeling right here. Is it idolatry or is it legitimate? What's going on? I don't want to be that pastor that is going to burn out years from now and be done with the whole thing because I fell into a place of idolatry and I didn't even know it. Church, I'm seeing it take place all over the place. Pastors are burning out like crazy 
because we're not paying attention to the soul and I'm coming in. And the reason I'm saying that to you is because self-sufficiency says don't ever do that. When God, when your God is yourself, you're gonna sit there and be like, I got it under control. My marriage that my wife has been complaining about forever and saying, hey, we are broken, 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 broken. And my response is, well, we're not gonna tell anybody about it. We're not gonna tell about it. My idol of self, which is elevated and says, I've got this. We can fix this ourselves. It's not a God. It's brokenness. And I hope that we feel permission to say there's one true God who's infallible in all of his ways. I'm not him. I'm following him. And so I'm gonna gladly welcome in every bit of outside expertise and help that can help me fully understand what's going on inside of my soul to make sure I'm not following false gods. Church, we have to be there. Like, pay attention to these most extreme emotions that we have. Church, let me ask you another one here. What do you get angry about and not allow God to contradict in your life? Like, what are the things that are making you so angry and so upset that you will not let God contradict you in your life? I'll tell you, one of the most often cited reasons why young people are leaving the church today is because of our conservative take on sexual ethics. This is just true. This is what we're getting, external polls. People are leaving because we have a conservative sexual ethic according to scripture and, and they're coming into faith nowadays and they're saying, you know what? If you believe that about sexuality and how that plays out, my freedom in it and all the different facets of it, then I'm out of here. I'm gone. That's not what I'm gonna submit to. And, and we're coming in with these different things. Like it's, you're saying, hey, you're telling me that I can't, you know, browse what I wanna, whatever I want to browse online, like I'm out on that. Church, what is it that makes you angry that you will not allow God to contradict anything in your life? I remember having a friend, uh, talking about this with a friend a number of years ago. He was in a long-term relationship with his partner for 20 years. And he came to faith later on. And, and he says, Aaron, are you telling me I need to leave my, 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 my previous lifestyle? You're telling me I need to be just completely done with that? And I said, no, 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 no. What I'm telling you is you need to come to a place where you figure out who's actually God in your life. Everything we've been talking about is God. The one true God who spoke everything new in existence, who loved you so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to come and to die for you that you can live with him for all of eternity. You need to figure out if you actually believe that that's true and you're willing to let him be the Lord of your life. I'm not talking about individual things over here. I'm saying who's sitting on the throne of your life. I love the way Keller talks about this. He says, if you don't have a God that can contradict you, you don't have a God. Church, it's true. I hope and pray that you're comfortable with contradiction. Because if you are, that means you're actually following him. And it's gonna play out in all kinds of ways that we don't like. It's gonna come out in your politics. It's gonna come out in people, family, celebrity heroes that you give deity to and you will not let the word of God contradict their life. It's gonna come out of people that you love. You don't get to go there with my kid. You don't get to go there with my spouse. You don't get to go there with me. Church, what do you get angry about and not let God contradict you in your life? Church, is, is it racism? We've been talking about that a little bit lately. And I'm weeping, I'm weeping daily because this is so near to the heart of God and it is a trigger and some, not all, some will not let the word of God press you in that area and make you go further into it to see if you can love a brother, a sister, an image bearer of God better than you did before. To see if there's any sin in your life there. Heaven forbid, we haven't arrived yet. But there's some that are so triggered and tired and exhausted that we won't go further and say, God, come examine me. I think I'm pretty good, but I, I know my capacities. I know what's real. I know what's honest. I'm willing to go through evaluation to see if there's any sin, any error, any idol in my life that I will not let you contradict, that we could be a better fellowship that knows how to love all and help all follow Jesus. Church, what are those things? What are they? God, church, I'm, I'm hopeful about repentance. Because I know we said from the very beginning, church, there is healing in repentance. There is. 
But repentance isn't just words. And it's not just prayers about other people. Repentance is coming before a holy God saying, you're holy and I'm not. All of my life, I want it to be examined before you. Anything that's not of you, I want to know about it and I want to turn from it that you can have total authority in my life and that I can live a life that is pleasing and glorifying to you. I'm telling you, church, if we will come before him and we will come to him in honest repentance, personally, corporately as a church body, nationally as a people, Father, not only forgive my sin, but give me the power to turn from these things, he will hear our prayers and he will bring healing to our land. Jonah. Jonah preached the worst sermon in the history of the world. He went to Nineveh, these people that he hated, evil, evil, vile people. And he said, 40 days and it's all over with, folks. And the people understood that there was a God in heaven that they sinned against. No hope in that message whatsoever. But the people listened and they were quickened to their soul. And they said, I recognize that there is a God in heaven who spoke us into existence and we have offended him. We, 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 they knew that they were guilty before that holy God. And they cried out in repentance and God and his infinite mercy healed that land. That is my hope for us today. That we would be Nineveh, the Assyrians, not the covenant Israelites who were also idolatrous. Not the people of God who've got it perfectly figured out that we would be Assyrians. Coming before a holy God. You're holy and we're not. And we need you in our world today. And it begins with me. It begins with me. It begins with me, this soul right here. God, nothing's off limits. Nothing's off limits to you. Root it out of me. Father, we cry out to you and we, we need you, God. Father, I beg for mercy today, oh God, for the number of ways that we've walked away. All the other little G gods that I've elevated and put in your place because I sit on the throne of my life so often, God. Father, be merciful to me. Be merciful to us, oh God. No more, Father, no more. Shall we be comfortable in complacency and self-sufficiency and entitlement and apathy toward the cries of another? No more, Father. Would you begin in me? Church, we're gonna move into a time of repentance and I'm gonna give you a minute wherever you are online with, if you're at home, I wanna encourage you to join in with us. But if that is you today, I wanna give you a minute to just sit there and quiet your heart and say, Father, nothing's off limits. Would you expose any idols? Would you expose any sin in my life that needs to be turned from? And would you take a moment, would you confess it before God and say the words today, God, I repent. By the power of your Holy Spirit that lives in me, I turn from these things that you can take authority in my life again. I'm gonna give you a minute there and then I'm gonna invite a couple other people to come and to lead us in a time of corporate confession and repentance for our church and for our nation as well. And then we'll wrap up here in a few. collective corporate um, time of repentance as a church while also taking personal responsibility. So I'm reading from Jeremiah 2.13. It says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Will you repent with me? Lord, we confess the ways we, as your people, turn from you 
and try to get our thirst for you met in other places. I personally and we, the church, desire comfort and security and try to get it from finances, our homes, and material things. We have failed to see ways to bless others as we've focused on ourselves. I can confess that we have tried to quench our thirst by tearing each other down. We carefully and critically look for weakness in others in order to try to build up our own personal sense of righteousness and ego. Lord, we confess that there are strongholds among us. We continue to try to drink from cisterns that don't hold water. They're black holes because our hearts were made for you. We watch each other struggle and we have failed to point to the fountain of life to each other. We repent together of critical spirits trying to control each other, pride in thinking everyone needs repentance more than we do, failing to help and build each other up, addictions to broken cisterns, and obsession with self. This saps our energy to be your church to the world around us. We affirm that you are the fountain of life and all other water pots are idols. They're actually draining life from us. So would you, together with me, spend a minute confessing the broken cisterns in your life. Ask God to reveal them to you. Then together, let's ask God to help us to turn from these and use us as the church to point to the fountain of life, to the world. And then finally, thank him for the blood of Jesus that cleanses us and calls us to the fountainhead. sins and repenting from our national sins and it occurred to me, I was telling Linda this morning if I had a line item list of all the things we need to repent of there'd be not enough time to do it here but I'd look at the, look at the bigger issues, the underlying issues and Aaron's already done most of it but um, Jesus said a long time ago if we want to live happy, secure productive lives, it's not rocket science all we got to do is love God with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength and our neighbor as ourselves, three people, God, self, and neighbor. And in America today, we're not doing a very good job of loving God, self, or neighbor. And there's a lot to unpack there, but I just wanted to mention the love of God. Uh, we have, as a nation, kicked God out of our schools, out of our social institutions, out of our government, pretty much out of our personal lives. And that's a high price to pay. If you do not know that you know that you know there is a God who is head over heels in love with you, has your future and the future of the whole world firmly in his grasp, in spite of the fact that it looks like chaos to you and me, if you don't know that, then you're going to live with fear of the future. There's really no alternative. Your fear of the future is going to drive you to have to control the future yourself. And that's not going to work very well. Those areas of your life that you're a little weak in, you may wind up having to annex something else, some other thing to help you, maybe money, maybe powerful friends, maybe technology, whatever. Isaiah puts it this way, the land is filled with idols. They bow down to the works of their hands to make what, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled and men are brought low. Forgive them not. If you're playing the I'll control the future game, you are destined for frustration. It is not going to happen. It doesn't matter how skillful, how charismatic, how powerful you are, you cannot control the future. And that's going to lead to frustration. And that combination of fear and frustration, fear of the future, frustration in the present will either manifest it. If you internalize it, it becomes 
depression and despair. If you externalize it, it becomes anger and violence. And in America today, half of us are struggling with depression and the other half are out burning things down and we don't know why. It's one answer we've forgotten or maybe never knew that there is a God who loves us, that we can trust our future to. When Jesus was about to be born, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, uh, prophesied that John would be the forerunner to Jesus and one thing Jesus would do for us, the primary thing, he'd enable us to live without fear. So what I'd like to encourage us to do in the next few minutes, examine us, ask the Spirit to say, what is it I'm afraid of? What do I fear? And then let the love of God take that fear away. Father, on this day of atonement, Yom Kippur, we remember that your blood cleanses us of our sin. We remember that Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, his sacrifice upon that cross was sufficient once and for all to cleanse us of our sin. And so we come to you today with all of our sin all of our stuff, God, and we come confidently remembering that there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ, for the law, for the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. And Father, we say thank you, thank you, thank you for the mercy that you've already given to us in Jesus Christ through your shed blood, which washes us clean today. And so Father, one more time, we just want to cry out and just ask God, would you give us mercy? Would you give us healing today, Lord Jesus, personally? in our church locally, in our church universal, nationally around this nation, Father, would you bring us healing as people return to you, God? Not that we would have a little bit easier, a little bit nicer life, that you would receive all the praise, glory, and honor that you're due. God, that's our desire today. Would you come and have your way in us? Would nothing be off limits, oh God? We praise you and we thank you this day. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.